There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Welcome to No Mere Mortals Cover to Cover series. The Cover to Cover series is a chronological journey through the moments in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation centered on the main character of Jesus Christ. In 2020, the Lord directed the start of the Cover to Cover series that originally began as weekly installments for Sunday morning youth teachings at a local church. In 2023, the Cover to Cover series will move to being a podcast series and Lord willing will continue to be weekly installments. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. And every time we get to do this, Lord, that we wouldn't take for granted the amazing freedom we have to gather together like this, to be able to open up your word, to speak of your name freely. And Father, that in this moment, we wouldn't allow anything to distract us. God, I pray that anything that is weighing on us, anything that would uh, seem to try and uh, divert our attention away from hearing you speak by your word, by your spirit this morning, Lord, that you would silence its mouth. That, Lord, our hearts and our minds would be open to receive you and experience you and ultimately to become more like you. In your son's name, amen. You guys can have a seat as you're looking there in uh, Leviticus chapter 11. This is coming on the heels, if you guys remember, in what we looked at last week with Leviticus chapter 10. You had two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. And after God had uh, set up the tabernacle, set up this whole order with the priests and the sacrifices, God then by his, his just awesome presence lights the altar himself and says that I want you to keep that fire going in that relationship talk saying I want you to keep this not out of conscription because you're afraid of, of punishment but because you love this person the same way again when you're in a, in a loving relationship with somebody uh, to give them gifts or to spend time with them. It's not something that it should be a drain or something that you find work to do. It's because you love this person that you want to spend time with them, to to do things for them that would just make them happy. And that's what this language is coming through. And then you see these two men, Nadab and Abihu. They make this choice, and maybe even at a good intention. Maybe they're a little bit inebriated. We're not sure by what the context of the scripture said. But they make a very poor decision. What they decide is, God, I know that you have said that there's only one way and one means by which you can, one can enter into your presence. But you know what? We're going to do it our own. It says that they offered up strange fire. That they had this, this good intention to worship God, to, to come before God. But what they thought that they could do was say, God, I know your word says one way, but we want to do it our own way. Even though God had repeatedly over and over, go back to the burning bush with Moses had said, take off your sandals, you're standing on the holy ground, that all of this wasn't because God was actually saying, stay away, but God's saying, no, I want you close, but there's a means by which we can have this relationship. And Nadab and Abihu completely throw that off. They go, no, what? we're going to get to God on our own way. And God says, there is an end to that. Trying, no matter how sincere you are, to get to God by the works of your hands, to offer your own fire and not through the relationship always leads to death. And that's what happened with these two young men. And God then communicating to Moses to say to Aaron in uh, chapter 10, this is what the Lord spoke, saying by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy and before all people, I must be glorified. Again, Jesus echoing this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Everything we looked at 
is again to remind us that obedience is better than sacrifice. That we come before God and we say, well, God, I wanna, I'm going to give you, you know what, God, I, I'm going to give you my morning. I'm going to get up and I'm going to spend time with you. And then we spend the rest of the day saying, good, I'm glad I got my 30 minutes out of the way with my God time because now the day is mine. God says, That's not, I'm not looking for you to do devotions. I want to be in a devoted relationship. Again, Hopefully all of you guys find yourselves in loving relationships in the future, and as you do, how awful would it be for the person who you think wants to spend time with you, and they're sitting there going, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yep, yep, okay, cool. Uh, 30 minutes is over. I'm going to go spend the rest of the day doing what I want to do, never to hear from them for the rest of the day. And God's saying, I'd rather you keep the, the 30 minutes and us just, just take me with you everywhere you're going. I want to be with you. And again, as you can come, and, and sometimes we even apply this to, to church, unfortunately. We'll say, you know what I could be doing on a Sunday morning? I mean, there's not actually good TV shows on Sunday morning, so I don't know what you'd be doing that much, maybe just going out and hanging out. But you're going, you know, God, I gave you this, this church time. And what God ends up saying later, in, in what we'll get there in the Old Testament, is that the people had, had gotten to a place of such rebellion that they were literally taking their infant children and putting them on statue hands where they would heat the hands to a boiling heat, a red-hot heat, and they'd throw the babies on there to worship other gods. And then they would go, oh, but God, here's your wave offering. And God goes, forget it. You think with the blood on your hands that you can come to me and just do your religious thing. You think that some, God says, you think that that's, this is what, you think the blood of bulls and goats, that's what I want? You think that actually makes me happy? They end up taking something that God had intended to be a picture and a point of what he would do ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ, and they took that and turned it into a, a religious process to somehow check off a list so that they could go about and live lives the way they wanted completely opposed to his law and God's saying you know what if that's what if you want the religious thing I'm telling you it's going to just lead to frustration and I don't like it I don't want it it's not about some religious traditional process that you go through to make God happy he's saying no I want I want a real relationship with you and again if your hands and mouth worship God but your heart really is just worshiping yourself then it's all just for show for others but understand, God, knowing that heart of ours. I love that, I love that song, Prone to Wander. I, I love that, how it's all about, God, I, I so want to turn my back, but he, he comes after us. He's that pursuing God. He leaves the 99 to come after the one. And so hearing this, you might feel overwhelmed and say, but I, I mess up. I do the religious thing sometimes, or I, I do the selfish thing. God knows that. And knowing your heart, he died for your sins to make full atonement and to pay the penalty for your sins. And he did so with joy. Scripture tells us that he went to the cross with joy so that he could have a relationship with you. Not by the works of your hands, not by religious processes, but by faith in the settled matter of Jesus Christ and the, uh, the settled matter of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, guys, we're going we're gonna to try and, and make our way from chapters 11 to 15 today. We're not going to go through all of them, Trust me, there's a lot of stuff that we could kind of get bogged down in. But real quickly, kind of a quick overview of what we're going to try and hit today is chapter 11 is full of the dietary laws. I'm not going to go into all of those. You can have fun going and reading those. Uh, we'll hit some of it. Uh, chapter 12 is all about childbirth. That will actually probably be the fullest chapter that we'll read in its entirety. Chapters 13 and 14 deal with leprosy and dealing with leprosy. And then chapter 15 deals with bodily fluids. 
So again, I'm not going verse by verse with you guys. You have fun going through that stuff. Uh, here's what I would say again. I get it, guys. I, I admit this intentionally. Is Leviticus can be one of those books that you kind of just pass over and go, I don't know how this applies. Some of it just sounds icky. What are we talking about here? What's the point of this? How does this apply? But again, no more book will you read that has the literal words of God being spoken throughout its entirety, that the Lord said, the Lord said. And so for anyone in this room who's like, I want to know the voice of God, well, then spend time listening to him. And this is a, a book you can go through. So I don't want you to gloss over it uh, in your own time, not because um, you know, it can be the icky and kind of weird stuff, uh, but for the sake of this morning and for your guys' Uh, time. We're not going to go through that. But look with me uh, in chapter 11, verse 44 through 47. So if you're there in chapter 11, it's right towards the end. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 47. This does a great job of you'll get through all these dietary laws. You have these animals that are clean and unclean, and there's all kinds of theories about it. There's all sorts of theories when they look at it. Some of it say, well, it's, it's about not doing pagan rituals uh, the way that the other uh, nations around. Honestly, I will say of all the ones I've looked at, I actually think that's the weakest because you'll see that many of the sacrifices and, and even those things that were used um, in the nation of Israel are actually very similar to worlds around it. Now, we talked about the process by what they did with those sacrifices bearing, being very distinct, but the actual animals, there's some crossover there. Some talk about dietary. They actually talk about what they, they call it like a hygiene. They look at that and they've kind of seen some things go, oh, hey, there's actually good stuff when you kind of space out some of that stuff of what was a clean and unclean. Now, some of that, again, gets kind of somewhat rendered out by the time you get to the New Testament. And then when you get to our world where, hey, I don't know about you guys, I am looking forward to those bacon cheeseburgers coming up, and all of that would be a no-go under these dietary laws. But we'll cover some of that as well. So you get through this whole dietary law chapter, and you start going, well, what was all of this about? And really, the greatest commentary in Scripture is... Thank you. We'll say it again. The greatest commentary in Scripture is... Fantastic. And so why do we need to go past the chapter when the chapter tells us this is why it was written? Chapter 11, verse 44, 47. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you out, up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between unclean and clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animals that may not be eaten. So why? We don't, there's again, these awesome theories you go through. Uh, there's a story out there and I looked it up, and some of those times you go, okay, how many times is this a story that's just been kind of told over and over? And so trying to find out exactly when this happened was a little difficult. But you find these stories about men who have been stranded on, on, on islands, and they're sitting there, and they're trying to figure out what to eat. And there's this one of this guy who goes, well, I know what the book of Leviticus says. He has no clue how to survive on his own, but he starts looking at the water, and he separates between what the book of Leviticus said, what was good to eat and what was not, avoiding the things that were poisonous. The guy survives. So again, there's all sorts of ideas to what these dietary laws could have been about. But instead of going all theoretical and trying to figure out exactly, because guys, they're going to debate this way and that way, is what we do know is God says, all of this is about one thing very clearly. It's about setting yourself apart. And what ways, again, can be debated, but the whole purpose of this entire thing was God saying, I want you to be separate, I want you to be unique, I want you to be distinct from the nations around you and following these laws, being obedient to my word, 
is a means by which you will separate yourself out by being obedient to what I've told you to do. Now you get, again, we, we said you get to the New Testament when it comes to the dietary laws that you get Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians saying this, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 of 2 Corinthians, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So you get to the New Testament and Paul says, for those who want to try and keep this dietary law thing, for those who are going to try and put people under that yoke, he says, all of that was a shadow pointing to Christ. It's not about keeping certain dietary laws. It's not about sitting there going, oh, well, if you eat this, you're a good person. If you don't eat this, you're a bad person. But he says, no, this entire, this entire section, we can get into the theory again of what made them distinct and separate, but it was coming down to where you're going to be obedient to God's word. If it looked different from the world around you, if they thought it was silly, if they thought it was stupid, would you be obedient to God's word and then be holy and separate because he is? Now, again, regarding this whole thing of food, so then you'll find yourself going, okay, cool, well, then I can just eat and drink and do whatever I want. We have amazing freedom in Christ. And yet Paul also will follow up in Romans chapter 8, verse 8 through 13, where it says, but food does not condemn, uh, commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block for those who are weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in in an idol's temple, will it not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things which uh, those things offer to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I take my brother, lest I make my brother stumble. So then we talk about this amazing freedom we have that we can eat and do whatever we want. And then Paul comes along and goes, look, you've missed the point. You guys are trying to follow these stringent rules and you're trying to say, well, I don't eat this meat, so I'm a good person. You eat that stuff, you're a bad person. And Paul says, it's not about that. Okay, so we can eat whatever we want. And they say, look, if you know that somebody struggles with something, and the dietary is just an expanded upon. If you know that you have a brother or sister in Christ, that they, they have an issue with something. It, it, it causes them to go into a bad place. And he says, but you have freedom in that area. Let's make it maybe something more applicable to you guys today. Maybe it's music you listen to or television you watch. And you know that you have a certain friend that when they watch certain shows, when they listen to certain music, it kind of just spins them into a place that they themselves don't actually want to be. But for you, you can listen to that music. And you go, well, it doesn't have that effect on me, so I'm just going to go ahead and listen to it anyway. And Paul, Paul comes on and goes, well, let me get this straight. You know that when you engage in that activity, that your brother or sister in Christ struggles with that, and it could cause them to stumble. And you're going to use your freedom in Christ to callously do things that's going to cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble? When you do that, you don't just sin against that person. You're sinning against God himself. So we set aside, and again, again, this whole concept of what was all of this about, it was about these laws that were a shadow of things to come, which the substance is of Christ. The one who came and laid down his rights. Who laid down himself to die so that we could have ultimate freedom. Looking there uh, again at those two verses of chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. Again, the whole point is, for I be holy, for I am holy. Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, 
would say this, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. And in 16 through 20, he would also say, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands, this does not defile a man. And in Luke chapter 6.45, we're told a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So again, all these religious people who are trying to, well, you need to have, make sure your hands are clean. You can only eat these foods. And Jesus comes along and goes, guys, what you eat, you're going to eat, you're going to digest, and it's going to go out. That's not what makes you defiled or undefiled. But actually, there's something that does happen with the mouth that will defile you, and that's what your heart speaks. That's the stuff you let come up out of there. It's to look at the problem and that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. That the words that you're saying, how you use those words against other people, what you say matters because it just shows the fruit of what's the seed of the heart. He's saying that is where defilement comes from. Chapter 12, we're going we're gonna to kind of read through. If you guys are in Leviticus chapter 12, I'm just going to kind of read through the whole thing. Follow with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hollow thing, nor come into the sanctuary into the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her customary uh, impurity. And she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then she shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who has born a male or female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two pigeons, one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. The only quick comments I want to make on this is, again, you'll see these things in this entire chapter. And again, you go back to the dietary laws and you see people look at it and go, hey, there's something interesting that happens with obedience to God. It doesn't contradict science. They'll look through. That's why there's the hygiene ideas. They start looking at things and they go, hey, there's something interesting here. We don't know if this is so much distinct from other people, but when you're obedient to God, we don't see a contradiction here. In fact, it follows right along that there were safe practices, that they weren't able to cook meats appropriately at that time. And so there are certain risks to them. And you see through those things and they go, wow, that's pretty amazing. You look right here, and again, you can pass through things, but even on the issue of circumcision, guys, I just think this is something amazing. You can pass over so circumcision, we don't need to go into the graphic details, but it can be a bloody matter. Here's the thing. He says the eighth day, just to let you guys know, on the eighth day, the vitamin K level in a human being is the highest it will ever be in their life. Vitamin K is necessary for clotting. 
for stopping bleeding. So God comes along and says, I want obedience and I want you to do this thing that can be bloody, but you're going to wait till the eighth day. And are you going to be obedient? Though it may not make sense, because there's other cultures that did circumcision and they didn't follow all these things. And you come along and go, okay, God, arbitrary God, the eighth day, okay. And then we come along and we find out, well, wait a second. On the eighth day is the best time to do that because never has there been a higher moment in that person's life that they'll have vitamin K. Now today when you're born, they slam you with all kinds of things and they boost up vitamin K in those first few days where they'll give you the shots of it. Though naturally, on the eighth day, your body reaches a peak vitamin K level like never before or ever after. Also, there's something that that is known to happen. They talk about when babies are born, they have this thing called skin-to-skin time where you just sit there and you bond, having the child on you and, and you spend time with them. Those first few months are so informative in creating, there's, there's, there's these hormonal bonds that take place where these, these parents, they, they, this, there's a bonding that happens, this intimate bonding that takes place. And so you even look at this time. Why, why this time off? Why is there a certain amount of time? And what, here's what I love here is that not only do you see the science again completely bared out and when God says, I want you to spend this time just you and your baby. I want you guys to be isolated. I just want you bonding with this baby. And then you might find yourself going because someone might ask a question. Hey, I noticed in there that for like a male baby, it's one week and for a female baby, it's two weeks. What's up with that? God's being all jerky there and saying that somehow she's more unclean. Here's the reality of the situation. Whether you like it or not, throughout history, completely contrary to what, by the way, you'll see in Scripture, is that women were disregarded as less than. And you're going to see a consistency throughout the law, throughout the nature of God, is the heart of him is go, I look after the vulnerable population. God is in the business of going, those who others would disregard, I will give a special attention. And again, the intimacy and necessary bonding to take place. And what God says is, I want you to spend extra time with that little girl. She is precious. She is not something to be disregarded. And I want you to spend even longer with her. She is someone to be cared for and looked after, not to be thought of as anything less. And I want a deeper, intimate bonding with the parents. Moving on. Something else kind of really cool there for you guys. Uh, if you caught at the end of there, it mentioned how you brought one offering, but then it kind of threw right at the end. By the way, if you don't have the money for a lamb, because not everybody's rolling in lamb dough apparently, if he goes, hey, but you can take two turtle doves. So if you're like on the poor end of the spectrum, God goes, I don't want that to be a barrier to you coming into the presence. And something very interesting gets picked up in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2 Verses 21 through 24, it says, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were complete, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons... Guys, when Jesus came, King of kings, Lord of lords, and he comes into this world, and he doesn't even come to a family who's got lamb dough. <laughs> he comes to a family where the mom's going, we can do the turtle dove thing. That when Jesus comes into this world, he didn't come, again, with the, we, we think of the majesty of the star and the shepherds and the kings coming, and yet he was placed into a feeding trough. 
that his family doesn't have enough money to even do sacrifices the way the middle class would do. He comes at the low rung. I want you to begin to understand that when it says that God knows exactly what you're going through, that he submitted himself to every aspect of what it is to be a human on this earth, it means across the board. That's why we're told in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. And in Hebrews chapter 4, 15, we're told, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who is being tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. He came not to a wealthy family. He didn't come to a family with means. And again, as you can go throughout scripture, you start to notice that you don't hear about his father, Joseph, likely indicating that he came to a poor family whose dad died off to be raised by a mother who everyone thought was a floozy because, yeah, you got pregnant by God. He lived his whole life with people thinking his mother was a harlot, that he was just a nothing. Isn't that the carpenter's son? So for anyone in this room who feels like you just, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what it's like to be without. You don't know what it's like to be mocked. You don't know what it's like. He does. He knows exactly what it's like to have people who said they were going to be his best friends. And on the day he needed them most, they bailed. They couldn't even stay awake to pray with him. How many of you guys go through stuff and say, hey, I'm going through something. Do you mind praying with me? Sure, I'll pray with you. Now, what if that person only said, I'll pray with you. And then pass out, fell asleep exactly what they did to Jesus. He's like, this is like the hardest day I'm ever going to go through. I just need you guys to pray with me. We're there for you, Jesus. Turns around, he prays, he turns back around. They're all passed out. Guys, I really need you to pray with me. Okay, the soldiers show up and they're bolting. Ditch them. So again, you may in this world feel like nobody else understands you. You may buy the lie that you're an isolated island, the lie of the enemy who tells you nobody knows what you're going through. I'm here to tell you today, Jesus does that he submitted himself to every weakness that it is to be human and yet was without sin. Also that he could tell you, I did it for you. Let's go to chapter 13. Leviticus chapter 13, uh, we're going to look at verses 45 and 46. Again, you go through all this. I'm not going to, as you guys are turning there, we're not going to go into all the medicalness. I could go all nursery on you guys where you go into looking at sores and diagnosing. By the way, they even get to like white hairs. And like, again, this stuff follows. It's funny because I've listened to some commentators who they try and go, you know, these were priests that weren't doctors. By the way, I just want to just... It's so ridiculous because when you find out where the whole thing of like where doctors come from, it starts from priests. Even going back into Egypt, where the Egyptians' doctors come from, it says that they were trained by the priests, that their priests had practices that they did, and then eventually got passed on to these lay folk who took on this medical business, and that kept going. And so even as you see through here, there is a very diagnostic medical process by which you're seeing a diagnosis, and then you see, oh, how do we deal with this skin issue. So Leviticus chapter 13 verse 45 and 46 says, Now the leper who is, whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn, his head shall be bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry. I know I would, don't make anyway. Unclean, unclean, he must say. He shall be unclean all the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This is the law of verse 49. This is the law of the leprous plague in a garment of wool or linen, either in the wrap or 
wolf, wool, or in any made of leather to pronounce it clean or to pronounce it unclean. So chapter 13, it gives you all the diagnostic tools of leprosy. But here's the thing. There's no cure. Basically, all they could do is they go, we can't deal with this skin outbreak. Read it for yourself. It gets kind of nasty. They go, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to have to separate yourself. And then they even start going, by the way, we're going to look into your house. And if your house starts to have like this nasty mold on it and you're leprous, we're going to pull the stones out of your house, throw it outside the camp. We're going to come back a week later and see if there's still mold. No mold. All right, we can start going on with the bringing you back into the community part. But if not, uh, if we find that it's spread, yeah, we're tearing down your entire house and throwing it outside. These were people who would have to be so isolated, so separate, and then it starts even getting into their garments. They would look and try and find, okay, has this fluid stuff, this, this nastiness, has it gotten into all the liquid and gotten to the clothes, and you, you get into it. By the way, I love how it's also thrown in there, and I mentioned this last time. It starts talking about, uh, in some of these laws, about like when not to eat animals, when not to, and if an animal dies. I love that God has to tell people, if a dead rat is found in your pot made of clay, do not re-gift that. Don't take the pot that you go, oh, dirty rat pot. Oh, I know. Scrub, scrub, scrub. Hey, buddy, I got a pot for you. God says, that's gross, that's mean, that's nasty. Just break the pot and get rid of it. He just knows us. You go through this. Read through this stuff. He just, you're going to see God speaking. He goes, he, he knows us as humans. But in this moment, he's looking at these people, and they have no cure for this, and all they would have is Separation. You'll understand then how amazing it would be for this person who would have been removed from the camp. Their house is sometimes destroyed for a man from Nazareth to be able to walk around. People who were isolated, who people wouldn't even want to touch them. You're gross, you're nasty, cover that mustache thing and say you're unclean. And here comes Jesus and he would touch them. He put his hands on them. And he wouldn't just say, hey, we'll go through a process by which maybe you can be part of the community. He would remove the sickness. Again, such a picture of sin in our life. That he doesn't just come along and say, I'm going to remove the consequence. He's going to remove the disease itself. Now, verse four, or chapter 14, I'm just gonna, we're, we're going to just kind of gloss right on over. Chapter 14, go ahead and look at verses 45 and, uh, 44 through 47. Again, it's dealing with, here's as you guys are turning there, here's what they have to do. It says, if after time they find out that, okay, hey, your leprosy's gone. We didn't know how to do anything, but fantastic for you, the leprosy's gone. They, they would come running to the priest, I don't have any sores in my check me out. And the guy's like, okay, here's what you got to do. Shave everything. Everything? Everything, bro. Shave everything. Your clothes? Toss them get washed, and then they would go through, again, these uh, restitution process. There would be a, a wave offering, then a restitution offering. And then when they did the restitution offering, they would do this thing where they would, again, they would take the blood and they'd dip it on the ear and the hand and the foot, and they'd say, you are covered by the blood. They'd take the oil from when they were making the grain offering, and they would go, okay, you got the oil, again, the picture of the Holy Spirit on you, and then they would put it and dab it on, and they would go, well, we got leftover oil. What do we do? Pour it on their head. Pour it on their head. Just cover them. And they go through this whole restitution process of bringing them back into the family. Verse, or chapter 14, verse 44 through 47 says, this is the law for any leprous sore and scale, for the leprosy of a garment of a house, for the swelling of a scab and a bright spot to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of leprosy. And we come now to chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, 10 through 11, 22 and 31. 
I'll say that again. As you guys turn there, turn to chapter 15. We're going to look verses 1 through 3, 10 and 11, 22 and 31. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean, and this shall be his uncleanliness in regard to his discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is stopped up by this discharge, it is his uncleanliness. Verses 10 and 11, look there. Whoever touches anything that is under him shall be unclean until evening. He who carries any of those things shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. And whomever the one who has the discharge touches and has not rinsed his hands with water, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Verse 22, speaking of the, the, a woman in a very similar way of discharges, and it says in, in verse 22 of 15, and whoever touches anything that she sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and will be unclean until evening. You get to chapter 22, you're going through this again. Have fun reading through that stuff. Um, if you have a nursing brain like I do, it's not so bad, but maybe don't read it right before you're going to eat a meal or something. Uh, but you, you get this point when you're going through this is that not only does this bodily fluid make the person unclean, it goes as far as to say anything they touch, unclean. If they touch you and haven't washed their hands, I think we've all kind of gone through that this last year, unclean. Lady sitting on something during her unclean time, they say, guess what? Everything she touched, unclean. Everything she touched, just unclean. And if she touches somebody else, here's the idea that, that all of this, and again, so many people go into, you know, why, and they look at the body fluids, and you can maybe look at what we read with Kaleeb in chapter 17, verse 11. But here's the, the main point you get from chapter 15, is uncleanliness is very contagious. Again, there's this idea, this, this horrible lie that somehow your sin is self-isolated. Nobody knows. By the way, God sees all of it. It's not hurting anyone. It's just you. That's so not true. You guys all have people in your life who love you and care for you. And when in your sin you pull back and isolate, it hurts. It hurts them. It hurts the, the relationships. And so there's this line, but there's this thing that you get from this, this chapter of seeing something about the contagiousness of uncleanliness. This contagiousness of uncleanliness. And then you get towards the end of the chapter, and this is the last verse we're going to read of Leviticus 15. Leviticus 15, 31. Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanliness, lest they die in their uncleanliness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. Again, I hope you guys catch this. God, what are all these laws about? It seems arbitrary. It seems like you're being nitpicking. God goes, no, here's the thing. I want to separate you from uncleanliness so that you can come into my presence. I want this relationship. He lit the fire and he says, I, I want to keep this relationship going, but there's a life that's lived and, and not even is it intentional or are you trying to do something wrong, but life gets messy. And God says, but I want, I want to separate all that. I want to separate you from uncleanliness. And so all of this in the law should drive a person to asking the question, how could a person be separated from the uncleanliness? And you see it over and over throughout the law, by the blood of the sacrifice. What separates a person from being unclean? And it comes along and says, it's the blood of the sacrifice that separates a person from their uncleanliness. That's why then you'll understand in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, that we're told, therefore, the law was our tutor 
to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Everything as you're reading through, again, you can gloss over what does the dietary stuff have to do with me? What does this whole leprosy thing have to do with me? Don't we have people who give antibiotics and stuff now? What does all this bodily fluid that's icky and nasty have to do with anything I do in my life? And here comes God to say, it was all a picture, it was all a tutor to say, I've come to separate you from uncleanliness by the blood of the sacrifice, a shadow of things to come that the substance was of Christ. In Psalm 103, verse 12, the psalmist cries out, understanding the beauty of what God has done for us and separating us from our sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. To be separated from our sin is to be holy. What was all of it about? He said, I want you to be holy because I'm holy. He's not sitting there saying, you're gross, you're icky, you're disgusting. He's saying, I want a relationship with you and life is messy. And I want to separate that barrier. And how is he going to do that? By giving his life for us. The verb form or the active form of holy is sanctified. That's why we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor um, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And people get hung up on that list. And it frustrates me because you missed the very next verse. Verse 11, and such were some of you, were some of you. That by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are not defined by your sin. We all get messy in this life. We all mess up. We all are imperfect. And God says, hey, I've got a solution for that. But it comes by the washing of the word, by the word himself, by faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the hope and amazing message of the gospel. You are not defined by your failures, your faults, your uncleanliness, when you stand in a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. He says, all of that, that doesn't define you. You were that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I have one quick video for you guys. Um, again, we've been, we look at this contagiousness of uncleanliness, and then here comes Jesus on the scene to say, I've got an answer for that, about how to be holy. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun 
as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful as the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place, this hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development. This time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know. 
until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus, but instead Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for ultimately the freedom that we have in you. God, in, in that you have given us freedom that separates us from our sin. And Father, that that was made possible by your son and his, his death on the cross. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who is still uh, trying to earn their way by uh, religious tradition that are frustrating, God, that you would just speak to them right now and just remind them and reveal to them how you have fulfilled all of what is necessary to have a never-ending fulfilled relationship in you. That they could live eternally with you. And so, Father, I just pray that you would uh, keep everybody safe today. Enjoy this time of fellowship. In your son's name, amen. The Cover to Cover series is part of No Mere Mortal. The No Mere Mortal ethos derived from the biblically grounded and inspired work of C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. You can find more No Mere Mortal content, including the Cover to Cover series, on our website at nomeremortal.org. Follow us on Twitter, Truth, Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, and most major podcasting services. Subscribe, follow, like, comment, leave a review, and share. The music you've heard has been provided by Sicko. That's C-I-K-K-0. And you can find him at YouTube at Sicko's Beat Suck 797. My name is Bryce, and you are no mere mortal.